Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within Podcast. Got Aaron Blisey joining me again today, and we're going to continue on talking about the deer slam species. And today we're going to cover the Colombian whitetail which is found in Douglas County, Oregon. And of all the deer that I'm going after in, in the deer slam, this is one that actually has the smallest range of any of them that I'll be going after. And this is the, the third time I've been out there hunting. Um, wanted to go out specifically just, just to capture it for the deer slam. Again, I was able to take a great one with my rifle before and this time using my muzzle loader. So Aaron and I are going to chat about this hunt, the history of Columbia whitetail. And uh, also Rob, my, my outfitter, actually holds the world record Colombian whitetail. So we'll, we'll talk about that as well. How are you doing today, Aaron? Good, good, Mark. Uh, I'm excited about this one because I, I want to reference a little bit. You talked about the the range and how small they were. So when I was editing this episode, at the end of the episodes, obviously we're putting like the maps and in, in, in the phase where the map like a color in the area where where these species are and i was i was like editing it in illustrator before i put it into premiere and i'm like i click on the layer and i'm like where is this like where's the color at like i couldn't see it was so small and i knew it was in like the pacific northwest region and i'm like what the heck like it was so small you are right like they it is so uh concentrated in a little area in the grand scheme of things it's like we look at whitetails all over the vast landscape we have and it's like this is like so micro it might even be small and micro i would think but it was crazy how small they are yeah so in oregon they literally have the hunting just in one county in douglas yeah. county oregon is is where it's at and in the deer population it's it's spreading now which is good, but literally they're not deer in every every corner of that county just because being a whitetail, it likes the lower habitat, and there are some some rolling, I wouldn't call them mountain, rolling hills there that the blacktails are on up top, and the whitetails are down in the bottom. So it's not even, like, they don't even span that whole county. 
I got you. So some of the research I was doing, because, you know, before we got on this, I want to know more about these species as well. And, you know, I did find that they were located and I think, and somebody might come after me on this, just send a hate mail to me if you want. But (laughs) I think what I could find is that they were located in like only two counties in Oregon, but you only can hunt them in one county. Is that right? Is is that, am I around that? That is correct. And they're also found um, in a small region of Washington too, which doesn't have a, a hunting season for them there. So okay. they are the, pop, the population is in two counties in Oregon and a small area of Washington with the only hunting being done again in Douglas County, um, Oregon, which kind of is, it's uh, where Roseburg, Oregon's probably the major city in that in that county. Okay, I got you. So a couple of the facts that I was that I th- I found fa- fascinating on this were um, that the Columbia Whitetail they were obviously named after the Columbia River in Oregon and Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, we we hit the counties already. I had that down, but uh, actually they were federally recognized as an endangered species in 1978, and then in 2003, after a couple decades. Um, to try to bring the species, you know, try to get it healthy and bring it back up. Um, they came off the endangered list. And then in 2005, it was the time where they could start hunting them, which I thought that was pretty cool. And it is. So this is, I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of conservation success stories out there um, when states or individuals or organizations do, thing, do things that, that show success. And this is one, being that it's such a small area and being a white-tailed deer, I, I don't think it probably gets to TLC that it would if it was something else. Because if you think about a white-tailed deer, I mean, they literally stretch from one side of the U.S. to the other. Right. So it, it's not like a, it doesn't get the love that a sheep would in Colorado or something like that to where, where there's a program and, and the population just grows because they're like, oh, it's, yeah, it's a subspecies of white-tail that's just found over there. But again... It's a whitetail, so they're literally millions and millions of whitetails. So yeah. what, what Oregon, what Oregon did, and you hear this a lot, but the the reason that the deer population was going down for so long was it there's it didn't have the correct habitat for the whitetails to be able to survive and really grow. So if you think about a whitetail, it wants it likes low brushy country. Um, needs some ag stuff around it to where it's going to be able to eat. And in this part of Oregon, um, it's pretty hilly. And a lot of the farmers, just like farmers everywhere, were farming every inch that they could. So they weren't leaving a lot of the river bottom timber. They were farming up all their fields and didn't have a lot of that timber or habitat that the deer um, could bed in or, or truly get away from predators and so forth. So what the state of Oregon did is they started a program to where they would give landowners deer tags that they could then either hunt themselves or that they could sell. Now, there's not, a, there's not very many of them, but what that did is it encouraged the landowners to protect some of the habitat that's on their property over there, hence get a landowner tag. Now they could get um, money for that landowner tag if they wanted to sell it, or it was something that they could use themselves. So what this did is it incentivized the landowners to create the habitat for the, for the deer to be able to succeed. Hey everybody, 2022 was an awesome tag application year. We had a bunch of clients draw some amazing tags and just starting to see the trophy picks in the field. 
Wow, but you know what? It's time to start planning ahead. 2023 is right around the corner. The state of Alaska, all species deadline is December 15th. That's right, it's already time to start planning ahead for 2023. State of Alaska deadline is December 15th. Make sure to give the guys in the office a call or check out our website, worldwidetrophyadventures.com for more information. Well, and I see that it took, you know, almost 25 years to be able to get that back and check where they where they felt like the you know the population should be and and that's something i was looking into as well like when they were going to an endangered species like in the 70s and the 80s there was only about 2500 of of them running around and mm -hmm. you know and and as of late it's like 6000 plus i mean that number might be a little bit more from what i could find but uh I, i'm gonna guess around the 2005 range there was 6000 or more as a herd which which is I mean, in 25 years, I would say, would you say that's a pretty good jump, um, you know, from going I, from 2,500 to 6,000? I would for that area. And I think that number is extremely low for now. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if there's close to 10,000. So, okay. so my first hunt for Columbia Whitetail was in 2018. I was over there um, using my rifle, and we were actually uh, filming um, – part of the upland slam so we were we were over there quail hunting for california or valley quail and and did the whitetail hunt while we were there i could notice a difference between just the deer numbers that i saw hunting three different ranches then to hunting three different ranches now um of the number of deer that i saw in 2018 then i was out there again last year in 2021 and then this year in 2022 i've seen the deer numbers go up every year and that's across the across the board. That's more does and fawns. That's more younger bucks and more older bucks. Literally, right right through the whole gamut. I got you. Now, you know, you knowing Rob, your guide and outfitter, and him living out there and being with these deer, and is he? I'm guessing he's probably from that area. Yeah, he lives in Roseburg. Okay, so you know, when you've been picking his brain and everything, what? as far as like his management practices and everything and what does he try to practice to make sure that the, these animals are still flourishing and, and, uh, people can have a good experience when they go there to hunt. Yeah. So on, from, from his side, he works with some of the landowners and gets landowner tags. So every, every time that I've gone out there, I've used a landowner tag. Oregon also does have a draw, but I've used as an out-of-state resident, I've, I've got a landowner each of the, the three times that I've gone out there. And, Rob does, I mean, just like any, any good outfitter, he does a ton of scouting, both via um, using his uh, spotting scope from a distance. Cause when the, just like a lot of whitetails. So if you think Milk River, um, those whitetails come out of the, out of the trees and they come to the egg fields, like, like yep. whitetails do so, so often. Well, same thing with these, they come out of the, the thick brush and the oaks and everything. And they come to the, come to the fields and start eating at night. So you can get at a distance and start, start glassing. Um, he also uses cell cams on just, I mean, they're a whitetail, so you can get their, their trails and so forth and start using, um, cameras to get what, what's in the area. Um, then what he does is he picks out what, what are the oldest deer to go after. And again, it's not like a, a whitetail outfitter in Texas. He's not running 60 guys through there. Rob only takes, he had, he had been taking one to two and he's got access to a couple more tags now. So I think he takes four whitetail hunters a year. So he's very, very specific on which deer those guys are going to go and hunt. Okay. So it's a, I mean, it's a pretty low number and how many people get tags out there for him? Like it's, how many it, he brings on? 
Exactly. It's extremely low. So what that does, it, it also, the deer don't have the hunting pressure. Like you just, I mean, we're, we're filming this on November 7th or recording this on November 17th here. Michigan's deer rifle season just started November 15th. And think about how the deer have changed over two days. Oh here. yeah. They're gone. I, <laughs> I mean, you used to see it, like you used to see them in the fields and all over the place. And now it's like, where did that, what hole did they go and hide in just because of all the pressure they got um, yeah. being rifle season here? Well, in Oregon, well, like the, the ranch we're hunting is a large size ranch and I'm the only hunter on that ranch. So it's not like they're, they're not getting messed with very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let me put this into perspective as well as if we're going to keep going on the Michigan thing, you know, we have an app now in Michigan where we can, we have to register our deer after we harvest them. So I, I, I jotted that number down the night before opening day of deer season and how many deer were harvested and registered in Michigan. And then the day after opening day, I, you know, did the numbers or whatever and, and found out the difference. There was over 30,000 deer killed just on November 15th in the state of Michigan. Now put that into perspective as far as like what the population total population is for these Columbia whitetails out there into how many deer were killed in one day here in Michigan. Yep. That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> the numbers in Michigan the numbers of Michigan are always always crazy. Do you remember off the top of your head what the what the total was going into the fifteenth? Hundred and eighteen thousand and some change. Oh wow. So there yeah. are hundred and eighteen thousand deer during well, I guess that includes archery season, the youth hunt and the liberty. Youth hunt. Yep, liberty youth hunt, hunt yeah. liberty hunt. Um, so basically, I, I, I said I, I just set a date of like whenever the youth hunt started. So it was like September tenth, somewhere in there, until you know November fourteenth. There was like a hundred and eighteen, hundred nineteen thousand deer shot and and registered. Now I don't want to get on the Michigan side of things too much on here, but to put in that into perspective, we know that this is the first year that we've ever had to register deer. So there's probably a lot more deer killed that nobody registered or forgot to register. So that's just what was harvested and registered. And I think even, even though on the 15th, I think you're still going to see a lot because it, what is it three days you have to register? So yeah, they may the 72 hours. The, yep. They may have got shot on, on the 15th. Like I know everybody in our camp, we didn't register um, until yesterday, mm-hmm. just because of course it's the first year. So like with dad, I had to walk through how to do it. And then yep. yeah. just, you got to walk through the whole, the whole process. Cause everybody's like, I've never done that before. <laughs> so yeah. No, got yeah. It. So it will be interesting by the time the season's over, what, what the total is and get that breakdown of, of really what I'm, I'm and probably you. So too extremely yep. interested on what the buck and doe ratio is. Yeah, there's, like I said, don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but there's not one county in Michigan right now that I can see that has more doe harvest than buck harvest. Not one county. Not one county, and that's a problem to me. That is. <laughs> Listen, that, that's yeah. That's that's another podcast right there. We gotta yes. get back. We gotta get back on the train. We, we so wandered my, off into Michigan. Exactly. So my next question is to you, back on Rob in the in the management plan for him. Does he take any does? Do they do they manage the doe herd at all? They do not. They do not okay. take does just because, um, well, he does. I don't know if others do, but he, he does not because as they're, it's kind of that tricky balance as they're still trying to grow the population. So it's that mindset of, I don't want to shoot a, a doe that's still breeding because that's going to sure. be a, a fawn for the next year. Okay. Yep. And I, no, that and makes with, sense. And with that, like their buck to doe ratio isn't crazy. It's not like, it's not like you'll go out there and you'll see, okay, there's 25 does and there's one buck. 
it's probably one to twelve, maybe, but it's not. It's not like insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I look at that number though. Now, if I was to say that that is in like a high density state, I would say one to twelve is probably. I don't know. I'd say that's probably pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, out there, but a low density state, I, it's probably still pretty good, maybe. Um, because I feel like even though the area, and I've never been out there, you can probably correct me on this if I'm wrong, but even though it's a really condensed area out there, it's pretty vast still, right? So, yeah. oh like yeah, very the sheer open. mass of it, it's it's very big, you know. Yep. No, very very open, and it. I mean, it's a western state. Like everything, just it's bigger because there's not. It's not like in Michigan to where there's hardwoods all over the place and you can't see two hundred yards. I mean, you can get up high and you can glass and like this is the same area that I blacktail hunted numerous times. I mean, same same county. Um, some one of the ranches that I blacktail hunt on has blacktails up top and whitetails down low. Like they're they're in the same area. It's big, but it's very it's very vast. Like it's cool because every time I've hunted there it's a spot and stalk hunt. It's not like you're, you're sitting in a blind or something like that. You're, you're getting up high or across the field and you're glassing and watching the deer come out either late at night or, or getting there first thing in the morning from farther away and glassing them in the field, then seeing if you can make a play on them as they're leaving the field, going, going back into the timber. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Now kind of staying on Rob here's also like he killed the world record Columbia whitetail, correct? That is that is correct. Everybody gets lucky once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, put put into perspective like how big that deer was, and like you know, because in the grand scheme of things, as a whitetail goes, that is a good whitetail, but it's not like a absolute giant whitetail. But for a Columbia whitetail, that is a giant. So let's that, put in that into perspective. That is correct. So so Rob's deer was in the one forties, and I want to say I like. This is something I should have looked up. I want to say it's like one forty-five or something like that. And it was one forty-eight and some change, but it was in velvet, so we had to have a two percent deduct. So it was one forty-four and some change. One forty-four after the two percent deduct. There you go. Yep. So yeah, he did shoot that in archery out of a out of a ground blind, um, and I can tell you the spot that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say the exact spot, but the spot he was hunting was extremely small, like fifteen acres. And okay. like a like a lot of the areas, uh, it wasn't on a big ranch. It was there were houses and stuff close by. Put it that way. It was he he got it in a little area, but it was a deer that he had he had actually seen driving and um, put up cameras and went holy smokes this this deer's tucked in here. So he I want to say and it's that early archery season there. So he spent a lot of a lot of days in that tent in a hundred degree temp sweating oh, it up and, until that until this deer showed up but yeah 100 144 after after the deduct that's the that's the world record he shot it with his bow but that's that's it um on my hunt i used a muzzleloader and i shot a 119 inch gross and that's the that's the world record muzzleloader columbia whitetail now with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. That's awesome. It, it, it what is. What a slammer it, of a deer, too. It is sweet. It's awesome. Got a got a funky long brow tine, but 
that that's one of the things. They're they're a small population. And one thing like I've noticed over the three hunts that I've been going there for the last would be five years now. I want to say the the bucks are getting bigger okay. because I think the population has grown, and it's one of those things. The guys that there would only be a handful of tags, and and guys would go there and and see a buck and and shoot that buck. And now it's one of those things. There there's still a handful of tags, but the population's growing, and you're getting the different age classes. So you've got the older bucks now, like that deer that I shot. Like I don't think he was going to get any bigger. We've I've literally seen this deer the the last couple times I've been on the ranch. He, Rob and I had him at seven and a half years old. So he's wow. an old deer, a whitetail, smaller. The, this subspecies of whitetail is just smaller body, smaller features, but an old deer, and, and that was probably as big as he was ever going to get. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is there? Is do you know if like their maturity level, like when a whitetail, like a midwestern whitetail peaks, it's like four to five years old. Is that like kind of the same scale we can put these deer on as well? I that's a good question. Just from like the time the three times that I've hunted out there, I would say like that five and a half is probably peak for what what these deer are. But then all of a sudden, just like anywhere, you'll be like, Holy smokes, a baby giant that's three and a half years old. Right. Yeah. And no, that, that makes sense. And generally speaking, like the, the Columbia whitetails are, are darker color antlers. And the, the past had always been, they held their mass smaller and compact and not as tall tines. Like that would, that would be like the traditional, like if Bruce's, Bruce's whitetail, did you see a, uh, a picture of Bruce Pettit's from, from Leopold's whitetail? That yeah, he shot yep. when he was out there. His is a traditional. Like you see that, and you're like, "That's a Columbia whitetail." That's that's what 95 percent of them look like. Compact, lots of points, short points, dark chocolate antlers. Like that. That's in my head. That's that's a traditional Columbia whitetail. Okay. Now, with them being living within the Columbia or within the 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 blacktails as well, because mm-hmm. they live all together, right? Like yep. the same area, yeah. Same, so, same area. Generally, generally the blacktails are up higher, um, and the whitetails are down lower. Okay, so is there any crossbreeding at all? At all? So I asked that question when I was out there because I I wondered the same thing. Um, everybody says no, that they've never seen seen it. But again, there's so few whitetails that are taken every year that. You can't see it on that side, and I—it's just one of those things. I think with the blacktails, because in my head, I always picture a whitetail being the more aggressive of the deer, right? Like yep. every, every yeah. time you always hear when when there are multiple deer in the deer species, the same area, the whitetail is always the more aggressive one. Um, right. It's one of those things that may not be documented net yet, but as they as they run together, you think it's only a matter of time. Um, to where they where they may but then again as i'm saying this like you think in the west in colorado they're white-tailed mule deer in the same spot yeah like you don't that, hear that, you yeah. don't hear you don't hear a crossbreeding over there now i know uh, yeah. I'm, I'm black tails and mule deer i in california like there's crossbreeding on those that's been documented okay yeah interesting i was just curious because i mean when when i even look at your deer it looks like a white tail but i feel like there's a little bit of black tail in your deer because what I compared them to is when I was editing the show, mm-hmm. I was looking at Bruce's, like you said, 
and yours kind of side by side there. And I'm like, man, Bruce's looks more of like a whitetail. Yep. And yours had a little hint of blacktail. Could be, you know. Yeah, could um, be. But that's what that's why it brought the question, and I was just like, man, I was wondering if there's any crossbreeding because, I mean, the blacktail are, are pretty prominent out there, right? I mean, there's yes. a good population of blacktail. There's a, there's out a there. large population of blacktail. Yeah. Okay. So, what it, we kind of hit on the terrain, like the terrain's pretty vast, right? I mean, pretty rolling hills. Yep. A lot of poison oak. A lot of poison oak out there. <laughs> so a place that I don't want to go to. No, no. <laughs> so good train. Um, what's the elevation out there? Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head what what the elevation is. Um, not it, um, like it's not, it's not high enough to where I, I it bugs me. Like I, I just as we we're sitting here, I looked it up. So Roseburg is an elevation of five hundred and twenty eight feet. So then oh, it probably okay. goes so up from there, I don't know, two to 3,000 feet as you as you get out of there and go into yeah. the, the rolling hills. So it's not that bad. No. Now, what is, like in your opinion, I know you talked about, you know, spot and stalking and everything, but what, in your opinion, is that the most successful way to get on these deer? I truthfully, it, it depends what you're doing. Obviously, archery hunting, I would I would um, hunt out of a pop-up tent, like the, it's, interesting because they're, they're like you think oh i'm just gonna put up a tree stand well the trees aren't tall enough that okay. i've seen to to be able to put a tree stand up to where where you'd be able to get out it'd, it'd almost be like hey i'm just hanging at 10 feet so i'm like almost eye level with them so it'd be the complete opposite of what you'd want to do um so i think hunting out of a pop-up blind you'd have a lot of success in in the whitetail there if you were archery hunting muzzleloader and rifle you could uh, you could do that too so my first buck that i shot um, we spot and stalked and, and man we played cat and mouse with this buck for three days and we he just wasn't coming out with enough light to be able to see him in the field and he was always out of the field um before legal shooting got there so it was one of those things okay we're gonna have to go in on him um, we tried walking in on him once and, and couldn't get a shot at him. So then it was, okay, let's, let's do for that afternoon. We just did literally a makeshift where it was a down tree. We sat behind the down tree. Like that okay. was, that was where we at. And we caught him coming out eating oaks. Gotcha. And it was one okay. of those things. He came out with 30 minutes of daylight left and his routine is he was just going to chill in there and eat oaks until it got dark and then go out in the field. Um, so that was, that was how we got him. Um, now in 2021, when I went last year, um, I was not successful, and that was not Rob's fault. That was not – I wouldn't say anything my fault. I'm going to put that straight on the airline industry because, I, as you know, <laughs> I I, feel, I coach here. So I had um, a long weekend that we didn't have games that I could get out there. So I was under a time time constraint. And usually it's one of those things, if you catch the opening, opening day out there, it's like opening day in Michigan. It's your highest success because those deer have just been patternable all year, and they've been there, and if you get there – well, I'm not going to mention the airline, but it took us, let's just say, I was supposed to get out there on Friday night. We didn't get out there until Sunday. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we, we only had, I think we, we had three flustered hunts to get, to get out there. And the neighbor had a landowner take two, shot our target buck on the first night. So he was gone. So we had to do kind of a scramble to see what other deer we were going after. And then got hit. This area of, of Oregon gets nasty fog. So there are days to where it'll fog in 
and literally you can't see 25 feet in front of you and, and that morning's gone. So we had, of course, one of those and it just wasn't, it was a bad, it was a bad trip when we got stuck in Minneapolis for, I don't know, 24 hours. I should have just turned around and came back to Michigan type of trip. <laughs> so that, that was my second, my second trip out there. Um, and then third, third this year, um, spot and stock was perfect. Like this buck had a, a certain area of the ranch that he always hung out on. Um, and he was also a deer that wouldn't get down in the fields normally until that last bit of light at night and was usually out of them in the morning. But when the trees where he was at, you could just take your time and glass through them. And once you found a deer in there, spend your time and you would normally find him walking around or bedded and there's so many oaks like that's the thing you always hear about the oak drop there were so many oaks around that they really didn't even have to leave to eat but what they would do is they'd get up a few times throughout the day out of their bed eat a little bit and then generally bed down within 10 feet of where they were at gotcha okay so they're not traveling too far no then no okay so when is the rut time there so the rut is actually later um we were out there in, in in early October, and they said I've never seen I've never seen the rut. There was when I was there, I would call it probably that early, early, early stage. Like the bucks were the bucks were broken up and they weren't together anymore. Um, but everything was still in a in a larger group. So you'd see a group of like eight does, and there'd be a small buck in there and a in a larger buck there. But it wasn't okay. like he was nosing anything or getting after it. Yep, I got gotcha. you. So you mentioned the fog. I, I want to get into your hunt now that we're, mm-hmm. we got everything broke down, kind of the species, where they come from, what they do, where they live, all that stuff. Let's get into your hunt here because the fog played a really big role in you taking this deer. So I guess let's, let's start in the morning, you know, yep. when you, when you get there and, and what was the vibe around camp? What was the weather like? Like wh- where'd we start here? Yep. Yep. So we got into, into camp on, on Friday again, cause it's coaching season. So I got a long weekend plan and my buddy Kevin helps cover when I'm, when I'm gone. Um, so we, we flew out there. Um, Justin had flown out two days before cause he was filming Bruce who that Friday had shot, um, pretty close to dark, put a good hit on it. So they were going to wait and find that deer in the morning. The one he, the one he got, they ended up finding it early on Saturday morning. Um, but on Friday they said they, they were out there hunting and it was all fog. So they didn't even actually really hunt in the morning. Cause by the time the fog cleared, it was 12 o'clock or something like that. So we knew or Bruce had a tag for a different ranch than what I was going to. The ranch that I was on was the one that I had, I had hunted the previous two times. It was just, a, I love, I love the ranch. I love how it, how it flows. I like everything about it. And I had success there the first time. So you just kind of get kind of get you get attached to it so that's where i want yep. to hunt this time um so saturday morning we went out and the and the buck that i ended up getting was the target deer like that that was the deer that i wanted to go after um and he was on the front part of this ranch well when we got out there on saturday it was completely fogged in and you couldn't even see anything in the front part of the ranch so Knowing that that buck was in there, we didn't we didn't want to go in. We didn't want to bump him. We just let's wait till the fog clears. We got a few days. We just nothing to rush here. So we went to the the back side of the ranch, which is where I sh- I had shot my first Columbia whitetail in 2018. And we did again. We didn't want to go into the into the oaks because fog was there, and in the back part it wasn't as thick as as the the front part of the ranch. So we had just stopped and literally just started glassing, and and we're like, hey, there's a 
there's a doe. Rob's like, there's a couple more over here. And I looked up, I'm like, holy smokes, that is a big buck moving through. And by the time we all found it in the fog and realized, hey, that's a that's a shooter. We hadn't Rob hadn't seen that one before. Then all of a sudden, you got to get the gun out. You got to get everything out because you weren't expected to actually do anything. We were just back there to to film deer basically because we knew our target was up in the front. Um, well, proceeding for the next four and a half hours as the fog came and went, we had played cat and mouse with that with that buck up in in what I call in the backside of the ranch. Um, very a very good buck that that Rob didn't end up getting on on camera after we were gone, but just how it's hilly, but there are these little pockets and it's so thick you just kind of work your way through there using the wind and the deer again aren't pressured, so it's not like they're running away. Their bedding is yep. is literally in the back corner and they move I don't know four hundred yards from their bedding out to the field like that's what they do every single day of the year it seems like. So we played okay. cat and mouse with this one, and again, didn't didn't want to put too much pressure on him in case something went wrong with the target buck on the front. So we end up seeing all the does that he was with, and would just get glimpses of him. Nothing, nothing to get a good glimpse or a, or a good look and a shot on him. So then all of a sudden, you're like, okay, we just spent four and a half hours there, walk back to the truck. By this time, the fog has lifted, so it's like, okay, but we're we're approaching midday, so we're like, well. We don't know if we're going to see the target buck, but at least the fog's lifted, so we know we'll be in there in there tonight. So we're like, on our way out, let's just go and go and take a look. So we went over there and started glassing, and, and probably about, I don't know, five minutes after we started glassing, Rob picked out a, a smaller buck that had been traveling with this one, and it wasn't a minute after he spotted that one that we started seeing all the deer in there and, and spotted the target buck. Um and where he was at, he was bedded at the top side of this hill on the front of the ranch. So we were able to then make a play. Um, there's a two-track road that runs on the bottom. We went and got downwind of him on the hill and just started slowly working um, until we until we got into the deer. And then I got set up on on one of the big tripods that that had uh, oh the hog saddle or whatever I had on yep, the top of it. Yep. So I'd keep my gun. I was standing because there was no way to, to to lay down and shoot or just at the angle of shooting up. That was basically the only way to do it. So I had that set and you could start seeing the deer move. The problem was it's so thick up there. There was just one window as these deer were moving right to left. We had come from the left and they had started moving into the wind and going right to left. And there was this one window that was, I would say, about 10 feet wide that you could see the deer. You could see the deer coming, just legs and pick out heads and body and so like that. And then they'd hit this opening. So we got set up. Um, Justin was on my right. Rob was on my left glassing, and he would he would let me know what was coming to that opening, doe coming. Because once they hit the opening, if they didn't stop in the opening, it happened quick. It was like two steps, and they were gone. Well, and so, that was key, too. Like when I was editing this, I was getting anxiety for you because the opening is so small, and it's like they're in and then they're out. So yep. having Rob being able to be spotting – and the one time he's like, here comes a bucket, Tim, it's him. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no not, not, not him, not him, no, not him, him, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, because all I could see, like, I couldn't, I couldn't use my binos and glass and then get back on my gun because if they didn't stand right in the middle of that opening, it was through. Yeah. So we had a couple of, do a couple of does come through. Some does would stop. And I'm like, man, if they stop, this is all over. Cause I don't, it's like a hundred and, I think it was 146 yards or somewhere right, right in that range. So with the muzzleloader, with the Gunworks muzzleloader, I mean, that's a, I feel extremely confident at that range. Um, 
elevated. Like there was a little bit to it, but I felt extremely confident if that deer was going to stop, it was, it was going to be all over. Right. And of course, Rob let me know finally that he was coming and just like any good buck, he stops just before the opening, just enough to where you can see his nose. And like, as he's turning, you can see his antlers go left and right just to build up that, that heart rate, just a little bit more. (laughs) But what he did and he started walking and I hesitated and he didn't stop. So as he was leaving the clearing or this little little gap going to the left, it was one of those things that instinct took over and I shot right as he was leaving, um, slightly quartered, hit him through one lung and it was like the liver in the back. And it was a good hit. He ran a little bit and you could tell then he, then he bedded right down instantly and we waited. I think it was about 15 minutes and, and it was all over after that. But it was just yeah. that small gap and it was one of those things, if I would have let him clear through that gap, would we have got back on him? I don't know, because at that point, they, they were starting to get a little iffy on how they were they were working. We still had good wind, but you know how a deer can just sense that something's not right? Oh, yeah. Like, all the deer had that sense that something, this isn't a normal, this isn't a normal Saturday morning. Something, something's not right right here. And the ranch we're hunting, I mean, it's I think it's 600 acres, so it's a good-sized ranch, but you know very well we were hunting probably about 175 to 200 yards from one of the borders. You know how a deer can travel. If they got spooked, that deer was, was gone and on the neighbors. And, and as Rob said, he, he leaves to the neighbors all the time. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't come back for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those things like, to me, it was it, the shot felt confident. And I, I've done that shot a lot to where a deer or something just isn't move, isn't stopped, but they're moving slow enough that I just, I feel confident in taking that shot. Well, and also, you know, going back to like the all the satellite deer that he was with, it's yep. not like he's by himself. You've got mm-hmm. multiple sets of eyes and noses. That's like one of those deer. If they spook, then everybody, then they're blowing, and then they're oh, yeah. they're running. So it's like you got to take your shot. Yep, yep. I mean, I mean, there's three of us too. It's not one guy easing through. That can be a little bit, a little bit quieter. I mean, we got the cameras and everything, and we got the big tripod set up. So I mean, we we're yeah. We were we were we were about as as stealthy as could be while filming in the field. Hey everybody, I'm a believer in using the best, and that's exactly what Gunworks rifles are. They're the best in the market. If you're looking for accuracy and dependability, make sure to go check them out. Get that gun of a lifetime coming your way at gunworks.com. Hey everybody, I've been partnered and working with Bass Pro and Cabela's now for a long time. They're your one-stop shop for anything outdoors. Personally, I use them for all my camping and backpack needs for all my backcountry trips. Make sure to check them out at BassPro.com or Cabela's.com. Hey guys, are you into keeping your whitetail herd healthy and strong? Go check out Buck Bourbon and their full line of mineral and attractants. Personally, my favorite is 110 proof because I've had some great memories and great deer taken over top of it in the state of Kentucky. Born from bourbon, field tested, wildlife approved. Check them out at buckbourbon.com. As you watch, if if you haven't watched the episode yet, um, go and watch it. It'll actually go live tomorrow if you're listening to the day that this goes live. It'll air tomorrow um, on Wednesday. But when you do watch it, you'll see with the muzzleloader, right when Mark touches it off, you know, the smoke, you know, is as everywhere, which is one of the, it is what it is with the, with that. Yep. So, um, and I think that's what a lot of people were wondering is like where you hit him. So you hit him one lung and he was quartering two just a little bit then. Yep. Yeah. As he crossed, you can tell he's quartering two a little bit. So I hit him one lung and through the liver. Okay. 
Gotcha. And he just, so that, that's, you know, that's, um, I don't know. There's so many variables there and I'll tell you what you, you snuck her in there. Like it was a tight little gap in there. Yep. Yeah. You you'll know? see, you'll see in the videos. It, it was tight. It was snug. It was snug. Yeah. Shooter's going to shoot. You know? And I, I like, I know Justin's always like, man, I can't see anything after you shoot with the muzzle loader. Like you just, just can't see. And to me, I'm like, Man, that's all part of using the muzzle loader, like the smokeless powder you can shoot, and you're like, "What's he shooting?" Like, and when I shoot, you can you can tell it's a muzzle loader. Like, I yeah. I I love that feel. Like, I grew up watching Shockey when he was using his muzzle loader and doing all that stuff, just that shot, and then the smoke afterwards. Like, I I don't know why I just I love that. Yep, it's the nostalgia of it. Yep. It really is. I mean, yep. it's if it doesn't smoke to me, it's no different than a rifle. Yeah, you know. Yep, but. Very cool. So, I mean, walking up on this deer, I mean, do you really know how big this deer is? I we, mean, did you have any idea that he was going to be the world record muzzleloader deer? We knew he would be close. Truthfully, because we, we had, we'd never been close to him this year, and Rob had never gone in and got a close look at him, so he'd always glassed him from a distance. And, and then, you know how it is looking at trail cam picks. Normally at night, and a lot of big deer, those trail cam picks make them look small at night. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't give them the mass and the length and so forth. So when we walked up there, it was one of those after hunting Saskatchewan, you can tell an old deer just because of their their beams, the mass they carry and their length. Like that's that's how you can for me, that's how you can tell just those old deer. And that's what you saw in this one. What we didn't have accounted for was the mass that he had and the and the overall length. Also his crazy brow tine was longer than we thought. Yeah, that brow tine was ridiculous. That was a dagger. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, he was distinct because he had he had that brow tie. Yeah. Now, so when you get your hands on him, it's got to be running through your head though. Like this deer is gonna be, he's gonna be, he's gonna be the record, right? So I, so here's the funny thing. Going into this, like that was the that was the goal is that we knew that the, that it was attainable to get the the world record muzzleloader Columbia whitetail going into this. Everything that had happened, like when you're on a hunt, like I had completely forgot, like the hunt, like we walked up to him and you'll see in the video, we never talk about it at all. We didn't even realize it until the morning we were leaving Adam, um, who was filming there with us, mentioned something as we were literally packing up at 6 a.m. to go head to the airport said, so where does this must be the pretty close to the muzzleloader record. And I'm sitting there and Rob and I look at each other and go. Yeah, no doubt it is. This is this is the this is the muzzleloader world record. We had completely forgot about it while the hunt was going on. <laughs> I know that I know that's crazy to think, and everybody's like, "No, he's lying." But no, that's a hundred percent how how it went down. And I'm like, man, I like so I didn't even we didn't even tape them out until we got home because yeah. we had to get going to catch our plane and get back at that point. And I'm like, we never mentioned it on the video. We never did anything. Yeah, what was the record before that? Do you remember? Ah, uh, I think it was 95 inches to tell you the truth. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so it was, it was one of those like things when I taped them, when I taped them out, it wasn't even close. Wow. But again, there, so it's one of those things. There's so few tags and when guys go there, do they really want to mess around with bringing a muzzle loader when this is probably a, this is a once in a lifetime hunt to go there and do this? Or do you just want to bring what you really feel confident about and use a rifle? Most guys are like, I'm just going to bring my rifle because I know it's a, I'm only going there once, once in a lifetime experience. I'm going to bring my rifle because then you know what? If the deer comes out at 350 yards, I feel confident. I just That's what the majority of guys do. So it's one of those odd ones of I was the odd duck to bring a muzzleloader on it. 
Gotcha. Yeah, you're the only crazy one that would bring a muzzleloader, basically is what you're saying. Yep. So I've got one with a rifle and I got one with my muzzleloader, so eventually I'll be back there with my bow. There you go. In that hot In the hot, hot. I just got to wait for my daughter to get through basketball and I'll wrap up coaching during that early time period and then I'll just be sitting in a tent over there baking at 110 degrees. Yeah, just just leaking sweat. Yep, leaking in a, in a T-shirt, yeah. just sweat everywhere. Yeah, so, you know, when you were in, kind of wrapping this whole thing up here, when you were putting this list together, and this is a question I like to ask you about all these species, but, like, I want to get your final thoughts, and after it's all said and done, did you think when you were when you were planning this hunt before, I mean, I know you've been on one before, but, like, did you think this was going to be, like, a slam dunk, or did you think this was going to be more of, like, one of the harder ones? So when I when I looked at the list, this is one that I knew in planning and in hunting with Rob before, and not just for whitetail. I've hunted with Rob twice for blacktail. I took my muzzleloader blacktail with him and my rifle blacktail, so I'll be most likely back there to get my archery one with him as well. Like I just know how dialed he is on the scouting before I get there, so it's not like some of the subspecies of whitetail and so forth that I'm going to do down in Mexico to where there's one or two tags, like just got done hunting the Gulf Coast Mexican whitetail. Well, there's only two tags a year there. So you're like, okay, and the population isn't one that's growing and it's the very small density and they struggle with disease down there on the deer. So they don't make it to be very old. And just, I know how, how it works. If there's only income coming in from two hunters, the amount of pre-scouting and pre-work that's done, well, you can't do very much because then you're not going to make any money. And if you're not making any money, then, then it's not worth doing. Let's just face it what it is. Yep. So, so like those ones, I know those ones are going to be extremely tough, extremely rare, um, just because there's not as much history. This one, I look at it as, man, you catch the weather right to where it's not raining or you get a couple breaks in the fog. I know all the other things will be in place for me to be successful. Okay. So it's weather dependent because yep. it's like, the fog. Yeah. Yeah. Just like everything is weather dependent or you could get there like this part of Oregon. So, so weird because of the temperature swings, there's always fog, but then all of a sudden you can get there and it's going to be 95 degrees and hot. And now you're like, well, you're hunting whitetail anywhere and it's 95 degrees and sunny. They're not going to move until dark. And then you're sure. like, okay, you get stuck, stuck there doing that. Like when we were in Kansas this year for the early muzzleloader season. Well, at 103, the deer don't move very good. Right. So it, that's where it's like if if everything falls in and the weather's right, this will this will be a high high success hunt. Okay. Now, but any go ahead. I will say cuz you've been along on a, on a few of these and and we're sitting at 7 of 31 species now and we've gone on a few hunts that weren't successful. The deer hunting it's one, it's one of those things, this is going to take, it's just going to take time on some of the ones that we weren't successful on when in my head there, there weren't like, I didn't think I'd have to go back to do those ones again for part of the deer slam. Like Kansas, oh, yeah. like I, that early muzzleloader season in Kansas, usually not a slam dunk cause nothing's a slam dunk, but it has a high chance of success when you go with the right person. But again, I didn't see the, the, the days being high nineties and low hundreds on the, on the temperature scale. So, right. I mean, that just, that takes all that and just throws it right out the window. 
Because then even deer that were even showing for that last 10 to 15 minutes is what those deer normally do in that early muzzleloader season. Well, now they're showing 15 to 30 minutes after dark. And there's, there's, there's nothing you can do on those ones. Um, but I will say like the, the deer one in it, it's a little tough with my schedule just because coaching is right in the middle of all the peak the peak deer ones. So it's finding the, finding the subspecies to where I can go after that are a little bit tougher. I can get after it for seven to 10 days and, and just do the time that's required to, to be successful or Saskatchewan, same thing. Like Kevin grinded it out for a full week. The deer yeah, was there. Yeah, no, it was, was showing it it was showing at night. So it's like one of those things you just got to put your time in big deer. You got to put your time in. Yeah. And he ended up showing up at, you know, two 30 in the afternoon, like two 30 in the afternoon last, last day. Yep. That's just how that's just how it works a lot of time. Now, I assume you saw it was one of those things. I thought we had timed it that week that is usually the money week. I don't know if you saw the week after we left. I haven't. No, dude, laid them down in the first three days. I think that they shot. Makes me feel good because that's when I, I'll be there next year. I think they shot three deer over one sixty and one in the high high one seventies, all oh, within sure. the the first three days of that hunt. Yeah. That's crazy, but you know everybody in camp did kill, but it just it seemed like more guys were grinding it out than it was. It was you know. the grind out to where just like any just like any season, even here archery hunting, like you can archery hunt for for right from October first every single day, and can tell the ups and and downs of how the season goes. But then there's just a, like for me, and it's fallen within three days of each other for me the last three three years here. I've killed a hammer within three days of each other here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. For me, that's just like where I live. That's that's the window to where a big deer are up and moving. Same thing in Saskatchewan. Like we were there, and you could tell like each day it was like, man, tomorrow's going to be the day. Man, yep. it was better today, but tomorrow's going to be the day. Well, yep. what it turned out was the day we left. It was actually the next day that that the. The floodgates opened, and it was like big deer were out during the day all day long. Yeah, it just progressively got better as the week went on for us. Yep. And I but, mean, it, and again, it's like one of those things. Like I always think, okay, snow. Like you always picture this when you get a heavy snow and cold temps, deer are going to be moving. Well, you got to remind yourself they are, but they need an adjustment period. It's not like okay, it just dropped to what was it minus ten one of the mornings you guys went out. Negative 16. <laughs> Negative minus 16. I mean, yeah. not for me because I was done at that point and I was in the cabin yeah. eating. So right. not for me, but it was cold. A deer needed an adjustment too. Even Saskatchewan deer were like, man, it just went from 34 degrees to minus 16. So their patterns are thrown off a little bit. Now it's been cold up there for, let's see, going on 10, 12 days. So those deer are moving like they should now. They need that adjustment. Even here in Michigan, like we got pounded with snow on opener. And you always have that mindset, oh, it's snowing, deer are going to be moving. No, I've seen from my trail cams that they were hunkered down a lot that, that day versus moving like they should because it was the first snow of the year. Yeah, it was pretty slow for everybody around me as well. I mean, deer ended up dying, but um, I just think that was just because there were so many people in the timber, you know. Now, I've and- had... I've been watching watching my cameras, and I have to admit, my my the three biggest deer I've had on camera have been straight moving from about twelve thirty to two thirty is the only time that I have them. And we have just under forty acres of standing corn on us, and we did that for a reason. I swear, all three of those big deer are in there all day long, 
Like I've got, my nephew was hunting one side of it and my dad was hunting the other side. And all I was getting was messages of, I can see a whole bunch of deer moving in there, but I just can't tell what they are. Right. Yep. Well, I mean, it, it, I do agree with you on that grace or not grace period, but that transition period, like when you shock them with something like that, it does seem like it takes them a little bit of like, oh man, I got to kind of pivot and adapt to this. It's going to take me a second, you know? I just, I looked at the shock period that you and Kevin had when you were going out that morning. Yeah. I mean, you guys didn't look happy. You didn't look like you wanted to get up and move very much. I did not. I slept through breakfast actually that morning. (laughs) Just, just to get a little more warm, comfy bed before you went out and sat. Had to, had to, it was so cold. But so back to this Columbia hunt here. If anybody listening to this wants to do that same hunt, where can you direct them to do that? Yep. If any, anybody that's interested, and it's one of those like adventure travelers, guys that just love hunting whitetails or looking for something different. This is, I mean, it. I love it. I'm going out for my, it will be my fourth time when I go out with my bow. Um, but give the, give the team of consultants at WTA a call. I mean, we work with Rob out there all the time. We get the details, what weeks and everything. Um, we'll help you get, get you dialed in. Cool. Awesome. I think that's a good place to wrap it up unless you think I missed something or something you want to hit on. Nope. Nope. That's it. As always, guys, if if you listen to this and be like, man, I wish they would have covered this or I wish they would have went into this a little bit more, um, drop us a message. I mean, we got 31 species to cover of these deer slams and we just we keep getting better with each one of, of covering, that, covering the, the topics and the history and so forth that we get messages on. I mean, that's the only, yeah. that's the only way, like, I know you do it with your podcast, Aaron, of, of yep. keep improving every time you get out there and cover, cover things that like, for me, what I think people may want to, may want to hear is different from what other people may want to hear. We just try to cover it all. Right. And also I, I do want to reiterate a little bit too here that, you know, if you guys want to know more information on like the regions or the maps and everything like that, go to Mark's website at markvpeterson.com um, and hit the deer slam tab and you can see a lot of the information that we're talking about and where these subspecies reside and and kind of get a lay of the land from the big picture and this this is i'm gonna i'm gonna cover one more thing before we hop off here and this is one because i've as as we've started to get into it and now we've released our third video so i've started to get the messages of where did you where is this information from where did you come up with this Um, why is this one in here and so forth again these are 31 species that I looked at everything in, in North America from Northern Canada, Alaska, all the way down to Southern Mexico. And I went, okay, deer, doesn't matter. Whitetail, mule deer, blacktail, brocket deer, sandbar, anything. And I just started putting this list together, axis deer that, okay, I think this is all encompassing, never been done before. And now I started to do the regions. There's lots of stuff that I where I got that information from SCI, other um, conservation groups, uh, the Whitetail Slam guys. Like I, I took all those regions and I tried to take everything and put it put it in there the best I could. And that's how I came up with the 31. There's nothing scientific behind it. This is this is it's it's my list of 31. So you won't see it anywhere else. That's why you're like, where I haven't seen this before. That's literally because it just came out a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Yeah, very cool. Well, good deal, Mark. I greatly appreciate doing this, man. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm good with all the questions I have. If you're good, I think we can cut her loose. Yep, I am too. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everyone out there, for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. 
Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.